Brandon Menard was executed last night at 9.30, despite the fact that three justices of the Supreme Court wanted to hear his case and wanted to stay his execution. The process by which he was selected to be executed among the many, many, many people who qualify for the death penalty was so unfair. You'll hear why on The Dirt Show, and you'll also hear that YouTube has not accepted my challenge. As far as I know, we're still up on YouTube, even though we violated their policies yesterday quite deliberately in order to create a test case. Brandon Barnard was executed at 9.30 p.m. last night after serving uh, 22 years in a federal prison with not a single infraction or a problem. He was a model prisoner. Uh, he died <clears throat> telling the family how sorry he was, family of the victims, and telling the executioners not to feel any guilt about putting him to death. It was devastating for me. Um, I tried so hard to save his life. I spoke to everybody I could uh, in the White House, um, everywhere else. And ultimately, the decision was made not to commute his sentence. The man who was killed uh, last night was not the same man who committed the horrendous crimes back 22 years ago. He was a completely different human being. What the jury saw and heard was an 18-year-old man who was allegedly a top gang member, bear that in mind, that's very important, who was dangerous and who would commit new crimes if he ever were released from prison. They also heard that the victim who died did not die from being shot in the head, but instead died of smoke inhalation. They also learned that he was not remorseful. None of those facts turned out to be true. He was not dangerous, uh, obviously. The prediction made... 22 years ago by people without any expertise in making predictions turned out to be totally and provably false. He became a model prisoner. He helped uh, counsel other young men to stay away from gangs. Had he been released, and nobody asked for his release, all we were asking for was to save his life. But had he been released, uh, say, 10 years from now or 20 years from now, he'd be a model citizen using his experience to try to improve the lives of other people. It turned out he was not a high-ranking member of the gang, and the government knew it. The government had an expert witness who had told them that he was on the lowest rung of the gang, that he was barely even a gang member. And yet the jury was led to believe that he was at the top tier of the gang. Five of the jurors said, that if they knew then what they know now about his status in the gang, his remorse, the fact that the woman may well have been dead at the time that the fire was lit, they would not have imposed the death penalty. The prosecutor who argued the appeal said she was now 
opposed to killing him. His warden, <clears throat> who knew him well for the many, many years he served in prison, opposed the death penalty. But nonetheless, less the death penalty was imposed. Why was it imposed? It was imposed because one Supreme Court justice, one Supreme Court justice did not vote to grant review of the case. The vote was six to three. Three justices of the Supreme Court said they wanted to hear the case. They wanted to hear a full briefing. They wanted to hear the lawyers and I would have been one of them, um, along with Ken Starr. We, at the very, very last minute, I only found out about this case less than a week ago, but we volunteered pro bono to argue the case in the United States Supreme Court. Both of us have a lot of experience. I've argued a capital case, double capital case in the Supreme Court. We offered to help educate the justices about this case. Three of them wanted to hear it. All we needed was a fourth. Remember, for the Supreme Court to hear a case, you don't need five justices. You need only four justices. Even if you have a minority of four justices, under the rules of the Supreme Court, they take the case, they hear a full argument, they then have a deliberation. Now, you need five justices to get a stay. Had we had one more justice yesterday, had there been one more justice to grant cert, it would have been a fascinating and terrible issue because the Supreme Court might well have said, yes, we're going to hear the case. There are four of you who want to hear it. We're going to hear it. That's the rule. But we're not going to grant you a stay. We're going to kill you first and then hear the case afterward. That's the way the current Supreme Court rules operate. You need five for a stay, four for granting review. And in at least one case that I'm aware of, they actually executed a man after they had granted certiorari in the case, after they agreed to hear it. And the assumption was, hey, we know how we're going to vote. Uh, there aren't five of us. Why extend this? There are only four who want to reverse the conviction. There are five of us who want to affirm the conviction. That presumes that lawyers cannot help change the mind of justices, that justices make up their mind before hearing the arguments, before reading the full briefs. That's a sad commentary on the United States Supreme Court. If they're telling us who are lawyers and litigants and members of the public these arguments don't matter. These briefs don't matter. We've made up our mind. We're five to four on everything. Or we're six to three on everything. Don't come to us with arguments. You're not going to be able to persuade us. That's a terrible, terrible commentary on the Supreme Court. I think the Brandon Bernard case really explains why we should not have a death penalty in the United States. You know, we're told, don't worry, uh, we have a death penalty, but it's only used for the worst offenders, the worst of the worst of the worst. The worst? Look at this man. 22 years in prison, rehabilitated, played a role as an accessory after the fact, was not a member in high standing of the gang. Is he the worst of the worst? I can tell you off the top of my head, 25 people who were much more culpable, why didn't they get the death penalty? Because they had good lawyers? Because they were white? Because they killed black people, not white people? In this case, we had the perfect storm. A predominantly white jury, white victims, a young black defendant. That's the prescription for the death penalty in America. The worst people don't get the death penalty. The unluckiest people get the death penalty people who are poor, people who can't get decent lawyers, people who can't afford to have an investigator on the case. Here, 
a medical examiner who came into the case afterward, and what happens in many of these cases is good lawyers only learn about the case late and come on to the case. And when I come on to a case, I spend all of my own money in hiring investigators, doing what I would do if the person were a millionaire. I don't make a double standard. In this case, there was an investigator who concluded that the woman was dead, not alive, at the time that Brandon committed his crime, at the time that he lit on fire the car, and that there may be soot in her lungs because it's an automatic response to take some breaths even after you're brain dead, which she apparently was, having been shot in the head. You don't survive being shot in the head the way she was shot in the head. So it's not the worst of the worst. It's the unluckiest. It's, there's a racial component, depending on the race of jurors. The race of the victims count a lot, and the race of the defendant. And when you get this perfect storm of poor black defendant, predominantly white jury, white victims, the death penalty is far more likely than if you have any other combination of factors. Uh, I don't know of any rich people who have gotten the death penalty in my memory. I represented one. Very briefly, he got the death penalty, and then it was reversed uh, very quickly. But for the most part, prominent, wealthy, established people with decent lawyers don't get the death penalty. Is that an argument about having good lawyers and decent lawyers? No. It's an argument about making sure that anybody who is subject to the death penalty get the very best lawyers that society could afford them. People ask me all the time, why did I take the O.J. Simpson case? I took the O.J. Simpson case because he was then subject to the death penalty, and I got a call from Bob Shapiro saying, you're the expert on the death penalty. You've litigated these death penalty cases. You've taught them. You've written about them. You helped draft the Supreme Court opinion on the death penalty cases. Uh, We need you on the team to stop the death penalty from being imposed. Once I got on the team, the death penalty was taken off the table. But by then, of course, I remained on the case. I have been opposed to the death penalty Since the early 1950s, I signed a petition calling for the sparing of the life of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, the infamous Rosenbergs. Julius Rosenberg was convicted of stealing uh, atomic secrets. He didn't really steal atomic secrets, but he was guilty of trying to steal atomic secrets. And his wife, who didn't have any role to play in the case, she was really just a hostage because they wanted to use her to leverage Julius Rosenberg to turn on his associates and name the people who were handling him as a spy for the Soviet Union. He didn't turn. He was a committed communist. And in the end, they killed the hostage along with him. My cousin was the rabbi who presided at their execution. And um, so... The death penalty has been part of my existence since I'm a child. Uh, I've always been opposed to it. In high school, I debated against the death penalty. I still have the little card uh, that I used for my debate in which capital is spelt wrong when I wrote about capital uh, punishment. Well, the spelling might have been wrong, but the argument was correct. And then when I was a law clerk on the United States Supreme Court, Justice Goldberg gave me as my first assignment to try to find the death penalty unconstitutional. I went back 
and I checked on all the debates in the founding of the Constitution and, and what they meant by cruel and unusual punishment and in the Bill of Rights. And, and I produced a memorandum, which was circulated to the Supreme Court. It's, my memorandum has since been published, uh, in which I make the case against the death penalty. And we got, again, three justices to vote that the death penalty was unconstitutional. And then a few years later, five justices voted that the Supreme Court, in the Supreme Court, that the death penalty was unconstitutional. But then later, that was reversed. But even the Supreme Court has said the death penalty should be reserved for the worst among the worst. Why wasn't there one justice among the six? Why wasn't Justice Amy Coney Bryant, uh, Barrett, Amy Coney Barrett, Justice Barrett, the new justice, she has written about the Catholic Church's strong commitment against the death penalty. And she has said, of course, as a justice, she obeys the law, uh, not necessarily the teachings of the church. But here, the law and the teachings of a church were the same. The law says, when in doubt, don't kill. The law says, grant certiorari, grant review. Let there be an opportunity for everything to be heard. All she had to do was vote to grant certiorari, listen to the arguments with an open mind. Maybe they wouldn't have persuaded her, but maybe they would have. So I'm very surprised and very disappointed that uh, our new justice didn't vote for certiorari. I'm disappointed that Chief Justice Roberts, who I admire and remember well as a student at Harvard Law School, didn't at least give the lawyers an opportunity to make the case and make the argument. I'm disappointed in the fact that we didn't get a commutation. Uh, we worked very hard to try to get a commutation, but the family of the victims uh, had been notified that the death penalty was going to be carried out. They were on their way to um, see the execution, and we just could not persuade uh, the powers that be to grant a commutation. Uh, it's not the way the justice system should work. And I hope that in my lifetime, I'm 82 years old, I don't know how many more years I have, but I hope that within my lifetime, we will see finally the United States of America do what every other westernized democracy in the world has done, abolish the death penalty. What many of our states have done, Massachusetts abolished the death penalty. New York has abolished the death penalty. Crime rates aren't higher in states that have abolished the death penalty. To the contrary, Crime rates are higher generally in states that have the death penalty. Well, you might say that's not because of the death penalty. That's why we need the death penalty in Texas, because there are so many crimes in Texas. That's just not the case. The death penalty, there's no real evidence that the death penalty has a significant deterrent impact on, on murders. Uh, look at these young people. They didn't have to kill they had already robbed this couple. They had already gotten their ATM. They did what they needed to do. Uh, they knew that they would get the death penalty if they were caught. This was Texas, after all. Executes more people than any other state. And yet, they engaged in an act of murder. The man who actually pulled the trigger was executed a couple of months ago. It didn't deter them. It doesn't deter others. And the idea of watching a healthy rehabilitated 40-year-old man who feels horrible remorse 
and who tells the executioners not to feel guilt, who tells the family that he hopes this will help them deal with the horrible tragedy they suffer, to lay a man like that out on a gurney and to use medical procedures designed to save lives, to use nurses or paramedics or whoever does it to inject a lethal injection into this man so that he will die. It's just not the American way. It's not the way of justice. It's not the way of compassion and mercy. And I hope maybe, maybe, maybe this man's death will lead us to uh, criticizing and, 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 and looking again hard at why we have a death penalty. Imagine how much better it would have been if the woman, Stacy, who was killed horribly, if her name were attached to a foundation, a foundation whose goal it was to try to prevent deaths of the kind she suffered, if the young man who killed her when he was 18 years old or who burned her body after she was killed by the other person in the case, if that young man uh, were allowed to go on Zoom and on Skype and speak to young people around the country and urge them not to join gangs and not to kill, how much more constructive and productive that would be than laying this man out on a gurney and taking a healthy man's life at the age of, of 40. So if you hear distress in my voice, I'm very distressed. I don't think this should have happened. I don't think that he should have been executed. I, I know that tonight they're planning to execute yet another man. Uh, I also hope that when uh, President Biden uh, moves into the Oval Office on, on January 20th, subject to any electoral changes that are unlikely to happen, we've talked about in the past, he has been a strong opponent of the death penalty. Uh, President-elect Biden, and we can call him that very soon after the electors vote on the 14th, started his career as a public defender. I think he may be the only recent president, a uh, modern president, who was ever a defense attorney. I don't know of any other since Abraham Lincoln. There may have been. I don't know. But uh, Biden was a public defender for a short period of time. And his son was, of course, a prosecutor. Um, the son who, who tragically died was a prosecutor, uh, the attorney general of the state. So I think he really has a lot of experience with criminal justice and probably some with the death penalty. The case that I had many years ago where a prominent person was sentenced to death was actually in Delaware. He was the himself the attorney general of Delaware and was sentenced to death for uh, killing his mistress. But then the death penalty was, was rescinded and he was not uh, executed. So uh, my hope and my prayer, it was a, it was a bad night last night uh, for many of us. As I was lighting the Hanukkah candles, as I was lighting the candles of light in a world that has become so dark, I wasn't thinking about Hanukkah. I wasn't thinking about the latkes that my wife made that was so fantastic and my daughter made that was so fantastic. I wasn't thinking about the miracle of Hanukkah and the eight days. All I was thinking about was this man in his cell waiting to be taken and strapped down in a gurney and his life deliberately and willfully taken by a government that should have more compassion and mercy than that. 
I suspect many of you will disagree with my view on the death penalty and with my view on the particular execution in this case. I worked together on this case together with uh, Ken Starr, a conservative, Republican, religious Christian. You can't imagine two more different people, me, a liberal, Democrat, Jew, uh, and he, as I say, a a deeply religious Christian. But we shared in common uh, a strong belief that this man should not be executed. I don't even know what Ken Starr's views are on the death penalty in general, but we came together on this case. We worked together on this case. He's a wonderful, wonderful lawyer and a wonderful, wonderful human being. And it was my honor and pleasure to work with him. And we tried our best. We tried our damnedest. We did everything. We stopped at nothing. We made phone calls that we didn't want to make. We spoke to people we didn't want to speak to. Uh, we did everything that we possibly could. And in the end, it didn't, it didn't work. At the end, it didn't work. The system failed. The system failed. You know, if you're going to have the death penalty, make it at least two-thirds of the Supreme Court have to agree. Six to three vote when all you need is four for certiorari? Is that really enough to execute somebody? We've executed people based on five to four votes. The jury has to be unanimous, but the judges don't have to be unanimous. All of this comes together for me to underline the fact that my instincts as a 12-year-old boy or 13-year-old boy in signing the petition against the execution of the Rosenbergs, my instincts 70 years ago have stayed with me. You know, people sometimes ask, what's happened to Alan Dershowitz? He used to be such a liberal. He was always on the side of the Democrats. Now he's supporting uh, President Trump against impeachment, etc. I haven't changed. I haven't changed one bit. The positions, the ideology, the attitudes, the principles that I had when I was 12 years old have still stayed with me. Oh, I've changed my views on some subjects, but I would be making exactly the same arguments I made for President Trump for a President uh, Clinton, or I did for President Bill Clinton, or if uh, Joe Biden were to be impeached on improper grounds and he asked me to argue his case, I would do the same. I would make the same arguments against the death penalty regardless of the circumstances, but here the arguments are so much more compelling because this man who was executed yesterday was not the man who the jury convicted. I'm not saying it was a case of mistaken identity. I'm saying it's a case of where an 18-year-old man who was thought to be a gang leader and thought to be a man who was not remorseful was convicted by a jury, but that was not the man who was executed. The man who was executed was a remorseful 40-year-old man who had done a great deal of good in the last 22 years. So, I want to hear your views on the death penalty in general. I know many of you will disagree with me on that, and many of you will make, make it clear what the facts of this case are and how terrible they are, and I'm not going to disagree with you. This was a terrible, terrible crime. But I want to hear your views on the death penalty. I want to hear your views on the process by which people are executed, the process by which people are executed, how the case gets to the courts, who the lawyers are, whether we're fairly selecting the people for execution or whether we're using criteria like race and poverty and other factors that are irrelevant morally to the death penalty. I want to hear your views on the Dirt Show. Uh, Now, uh, an update. 
Um, yesterday, you, you heard me talk about how we challenged uh, YouTube to take down this show because I had a guest yesterday who met the criteria that YouTube set out for taking down videos. He said there was at least the possibility that this election would have come out differently if not for uh, mistakes. Uh, he believes that. Um, that's not necessarily my view, but he believes that. He expressed it quite forcefully on the show. And so, YouTube, if you have consistency and apply your principles fairly, would take down my show. Uh, but you pick and choose. You select which shows you want to take down. You probably won't take show my show down because I'm moderate uh, on these issues. But I had a guest who expressed views which fall into the criteria for you taking down the tape. So the challenge is now up to you. So on this sad day, on this day where I can't smile because I'm thinking so much about uh, this young man who who was executed yesterday, I just can't really bring myself to smile. I had a terrible night last night, the night before. Uh, I take these things quite personally, even though I have to think of them professionally. Um, on this sad day, um, I'll take your questions on any subject. So let's turn to your points of view now on The Dirt Show. Our first call today is from John in Florida. Hello, Professor Dershowitz. This is John from uh, Clearwater, Florida. I have a question regarding uh, perhaps, say, March or April 2021. Joe Biden is president of the United States. What if there was irrefutable video proof uh, somehow that came to light that actually showed someone hacking into a computer system and changing votes from the election. And the result of this would be an overwhelming victory for Joe Biden. What, how would the United States react to circumstances like that, and what would happen to uh, the president and, uh, and the White House at that point? Um, interesting to hear your theory on that. Thanks, and great podcast. You're added to my daily list of uh, podcasts. This is, uh, this is a great opportunity to, to educate myself. Thank you very much, and have a great day. Well, thank you so much. There is a clear answer to your question, and if anybody gives you any other answer, they're misleading you. The clear answer to your question of what would happen if we discovered massive fraud that really would have turned the election around, but we didn't discover it until March, the clear answer is no one knows. And if anybody gives you a different answer, tell him you don't believe him. No one knows. It wasn't contemplated by the framers of the Constitution. It's not in the Constitution. There is no law that provides for it. I'll give you a couple of possible hypothetical scenarios. If it were to turn out, and this obviously would never happen, I'm just making it up to give you a hypothetical, that the current president arranged for the fraud and was part of the fraud that brought him into the presidency and it was criminal fraud, I can imagine an impeachment at that point. Um, the law isn't clear that a president can be impeached for acts done before he became president, but I think that it would be permitted if the acts were acts that led him to the presidency. But I'm even that one, I'm not 100% sure of. I'm 90% sure of that one. But if it were just fraud committed by people unrelated to the incumbent president, 
I don't know. There's no process in the Constitution for removing it. It would be a terrible crisis of confidence for the country, but I suspect that the presidency would continue and whoever lost the election would start campaigning to be reelected and would probably win overwhelmingly the next time if you could prove that the incumbent president had been elected by by fraud and, and deception. But I can tell you categorically, there's no constitutional answer to your incredibly interesting and difficult question. If I was still teaching at Harvard Law School, I give that as an exam question. And any student who purported to know the answer would get a B minus. I mean, the only right answer there is we don't know. Here are the arguments on one side. Here are the arguments on the other side. But we don't know. And often that is the best and most truthful answer. Try to get lawyers to say that. Try to get pundits to say that. Forget about it. Well, you heard me say it. I don't know. Thanks for your great question. Our next question is from Chris in Colorado. Hi, this is Chris out of Colorado. You keep saying that there isn't enough numbers to change the outcome of the election. But as I'm looking into each individual state, it seems like there's more than enough numbers uh, greater than the margin of victory. So I'm curious where you are getting your numbers. And in addition to that, does all of this information have to be present in a lower court if the strategy is to get to the Supreme Court? Uh, Thanks for your insights. Great question. My point about numbers is that there is an inverse relationship between the strength of the legal case and the numbers. For example, Pennsylvania, the strongest legal case, because there you have a clear situation where we know that several thousand, we don't know precisely how many, several thousand um, uh, mail ballots were received and counted after the close of Election Day under a court order which was inconsistent with what the legislature had found. That's a clear winning legal argument in this Supreme Court, whether it's the right answer or not, I leave to you. But as a lawyer, it would win in the Supreme Court. But the numbers there aren't enough to turn around the 80,000 or more margin of victory in Pennsylvania for Biden. In states where the numbers are enough, the legal theory doesn't seem to be sufficiently strong or the timing isn't sufficiently clear so that you can get a case in front of the Supreme Court. Now, this case that's now pending from uh, Texas uh, does have an interesting legal theory. States can sue other states, uh, whether you can sue one state because you think the members of your own state were disenfranchised. That's an interesting issue and never before um, decided. Um, and there, we don't know what the numbers are. Um, and it's, it's, it, remember, whoever is suing has the burden of proof. And you have to demonstrate by evidence, subject to cross-examination, that there were enough fraudulent or mistaken votes to change the outcome of the election in enough states to change the presidency. And I just don't think those numbers appear to be there at the moment, but I have an open mind. And I'm not like many of my academic colleagues who start by saying anything that we can say against Trump will say, and now let's find an argument to support it. Or some of my colleagues, maybe even on the other side, um, I'm open-minded. Wherever the numbers go, wherever the legal theory takes us, I'm willing to go there. We now have a return caller from New York. Hello, Mr. Dershowitz. 
This is John from New York. Uh, forgive me for reading this. Uh, thank you for airing my previous call, even though my opinion countered yours on such a sensitive topic. As I'm composing this message, I'm watching the news in real time and I see that a pardon did not come for Brandon. Perhaps there is some consolation in the thought, the possibility that on his passing, he was greeted and warmly embraced by Todd and Stacy, who, if they could speak, might well have forgiven him. For all we know, maybe they had a part in positively influencing his future life in their final moments. The judgments and passions of the living can be so influenced to good ends and bad by the flesh. P.S. A very small further consolation. If you need to put on a little weight, you would be welcome at our table. Thank you. I appreciate the call. I hope for his sake that uh, Brandon Bernard believes in an afterlife. I hope he believes that he will be greeted uh, in heaven. Um, obviously, it won't be an easy job getting through the pearly gates. He's going to have to balance and justify what he clearly did as a young man, which was horribly evil. No matter what version you take of the facts, what he did was horribly evil. There's no taking that away with the good he did uh, afterward. Um, I think religions differ on this. Um, there are no groups of Christians who say that what really counts is what you are and what you believe at the very end. Uh, other religions say, no, you have to balance the good and the bad. Um, whatever view you take and whatever beliefs you have about the world to come, I have to tell you, should not be factored into making secular decisions. There's a wonderful story that I have used in making legal arguments of a Hasidic rabbi who had a reputation for never, ever saying anything bad about anybody or any group. And the students challenged him and said, say something good about atheists. The rabbi was taken aback and he said, I will say something good about atheists. <clears throat> if you ever see a poor man on the street starving and he asks you for money or for bread, you must act as if there is no God. You must become an atheist for the moment and say to yourself, I am the only person who can feed this man, give him money and save his life. So there is a time for not believing in God, said this great rabbi. I like that argument when juries have to decide. You tell the jury, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you may believe in God. You may believe that in the end, God will determine innocence or guilt. But when you sit in that jury box, you must act as if there is no God and no appellate court. You're the last judgment. You are the group that has to determine whether this man lives or dies. It's up to you. It's not up to any other being or anybody else. It's up to you. So, yeah, uh, people have the right to whatever beliefs they want. But in a secular society... It's up to the judges. It's up to the president. It's up to human beings to decide the future, the future of all of us. But now in the context of this case, the future of Brandon Bernard. And I think a mistake was made in his case. Thanks for your great call. Let's take our next call. Professor Dershowitz, I was just wondering if someone who uh, is quite famous or, according to some people, infamous for defending extremely unpopular clients, did you ever consider defending um, probably one of the most unpopular clients in modern history, the police officers who killed 
George Floyd? And if you didn't, um, do you think that they're going to get a fair trial or are they going to be denied due process because of the attention that their alleged crime has received? Thank you. If I were to live in the area and were appointed by the court, I would take that case. Um, I would not expect necessarily to win it, certainly not on behalf of the policeman who put his knee on the neck of George Floyd. Um, But yes, of course, I would take the case. Uh, I would take uh, any case involving any defendant, no matter how heinous the crime. I have certain rules. I don't defend people who are in the business of crime. I don't defend mafia members and help free them so they can go out and commit more crimes or terrorists or or drug dealers. People who are in the business of crime, I don't defend. I don't defend fugitives, people who have tried to escape from justice. But there is no crime so heinous that I would not defend a person accused of it, even if I personally believe that person was guilty. It's imperative under our system of justice that the most despised, the most guilty, be zealously represented. The reason we represent the guilty is to make sure that the innocent are not prosecuted. The vast majority of people who are charged with crime in America are guilty. Thank God for that. Would we want to live in a country where the majority of people charged with crime are innocent? Yeah, that's Iran. That's China. That may be the former Soviet Union, maybe Belarus, uh, maybe Venezuela, uh, maybe Cuba under Castro. But it is not the United States of America. So the job of the criminal defense lawyer is to defend the guilty as well as the innocent and to get them the best result they possibly can get them. You wouldn't want a doctor who performed surgery on you and said, well, I'm not going to get you the best result. I'll I'll get you a, a good result, but not the best result I can. The same thing with a lawyer. We have to try to get the best result no matter who we're defending. We're not the ultimate judge. It's the jury, the judge, the appellate courts. It's the system of justice. We're just part of that system. And unless we defense attorneys zealously defend everybody, the system fails to work. The system failed to work with Brandon Bernard because his lawyer at trial wasn't zealous enough, didn't have the resources, didn't have the ability and the experience. I make you one guarantee. If I had been, or if Ken Starr had been, or if any one of dozens and dozens of good lawyers Had been his lawyer at trial, he would not have gotten the death penalty. And so the idea of somebody going to his death because of who his lawyer was is as horrible as people going to their death because of who their doctors were or their hospitals were. We should try to make sure everybody gets adequate medical care and adequate legal care. Thanks for your great call. Our next call is from Bruce in Georgia. Hello, Mr. Dershowitz. This is Bruce in Atlanta. Um, hey, I really enjoyed the podcast, and uh, I appreciate you you providing it. I have one um, sort of silly-ish suggestion, but it's actually a real suggestion. It occurred to me that you could rename the show rather than calling it The Dirt Show. It's actually sort of redundant. Just call it Dirt Show. Anyway, <laughs> I think that has sort of a, uh, a ring to it. Thanks a bunch. Well, thank you very much. As you know, so, someone who was brought up with a little bit of um, negative feelings toward Germany. After all, I grew up in the post-Holocaust era, and many of my family members were murdered by German Nazis. Um, I think I would have a little hesitation using a German word, uh, "der" show uh, in my in my show title. So I think I'm going to 
stick with the der show. I'm happy to go with der show, but not der show. That, you know, I was brought up, we didn't buy Volkswagens when I grew up. We didn't buy German products. Uh, my own view is that Nazi collaborators, uh, stormtroopers and others were not punished enough uh, after the Holocaust. When I think about uh, the execution yesterday, um, I think about how many mass murderers in Nazi Germany lived good lives afterward. How many of them died in the arms of their grandchildren? How many of them suffered nothing from putting a gun to the head of a young Jewish baby and pulling the trigger by leading thousands of people into gas chambers? These people got away with mass murder and genocide, and the world stood by because we had a Cold War, and we needed a Marshall Plan, and we needed to deal with how to oppose the Soviet Union, we just let Nazi war criminals get away with it. And that has also influenced my life, my ideology, why I believe so strongly in human rights. Uh, one of my closest friends in the world, my mentor, my teacher, was General Telford Taylor, who was the chief prosecutor at Nuremberg and helped uh, put uh, to death in those cases and in prison uh, many of the most horrible Nazi leaders, and I'm sure you'll now ask me the question, I've opened it up, so you have to ask me the question, did I believe in the death penalty for the perpetrators of Nazi crimes? And my answer is no. I, I wish they had spent the rest of their life in prison uh, suffering from, hopefully, the realization and the guilt of what they had done. Also, if they had been kept alive, even Adolf Eichmann, who I opposed his execution. Even if they, if they had been kept alive, maybe they would have led us to other Nazis who, were, who had escaped and lived in Argentina and Brazil and Ecuador and other countries in South America and other countries around the world, helped to escape by facilitators, uh, tragically. So, you know, I'm obsessed, obviously, as a post-Holocaust Jew who grew up in a neighborhood of Holocaust survivors. I'm obsessed with the lack of justice uh, for, for Nazis. And I think of that as a frame of reference when I look at cases like the case of Brandon Bernard. So thank you for your, for your great question. I really appreciate it. Okay, let's turn now to our last call for the day. Hi, Al. Thank you for your show. I want to ask you, it's Hanukkah, and I know you were born by Orthodox Jews. Uh, can you tell us about when you were young in Williamsburg, how it was? then and how it changed and if you ever met uh, the real ultra-orthodox rabbis like Rabbi Joel Tehlbaum or others, thank you. Thank you for the show. Thank you for the great nostalgic question. I grew up in Borough Park, which is now the heart of Hasidim. I grew up across the street from the Bubba Rebbe. Um, in fact, the street I grew up on, this is interesting, I grew up on the same street in which uh, Sandy Koufax lived, uh, 48th Street, uh, Elliot Gould lived around the corner, uh, Buddy Hackett lived down the block, and they recently renamed the street, and they didn't rename it after any of the prominent people who lived on it that I just mentioned. They named it Bubov Promenade after the great Bubov Rebbe, uh, a Hasidic rabbi. So I grew up in a modern Orthodox uh, Jewish uh, community. I grew up with very strong both Jewish and American values. My parents were extraordinarily patriotic, as were my grandparents. They loved America. My grandparents were immigrants from Poland. 
They looked to America as the country that saved them. America could do no wrong. Franklin Delano Roosevelt could do no wrong. Harry Truman could do no wrong. Dwight Eisenhower could do no wrong. You know, I grew up with a very uncritical uh, approach to American leaders because we just adored them and, and loved them. I had the privilege on three occasions of meeting the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the great rabbi whose influence is now spread all over the world. And I think of these great people as tonight I will light the second candle of uh, Hanukkah and uh, we will light uh, all eight candles and hope that it brings light to the world. So for those of you who celebrate Hanukkah, Chag Sameach, Happy Hanukkah. For those of you who will soon be celebrating Christmas, Merry Christmas to everybody. Happy New Year. And I think we all hope that next year uh, with the uh, vaccine, next year will be a much better year for the world. I hope that next year will also bring increased peace in the Middle East. We saw yesterday that Morocco, where I visited recently, um, has normalized relations with uh, Israel. And um, I am optimistic. I'm optimistic about next year, but we still have time. We still have um, uh, a good period of time before next year. There'll be many more dirt shows between now and New Year, so I'm not now going to wish you uh, the Happy New Year that I will wish you on December 31st. So in the meantime, have a good weekend and tune in to the Dirt Show. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.